0: All right, everyone, we are going to be continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 6, and as you turn there, there's a few things I want to let you know about that's going to be happening in the life of our church this fall. Um, You've been seeing some things that are probably in the bulletin and on social media, and you probably have no idea what it is, but we've been mentioning them, saying that this fall there's a thing called Come to Life, and it's on its way, and it's been uh, in the works. We've been planning this in the background. There's been several people in our church who've been helping plan this and organize it, and here's what it is. We actually want to reveal it to you today, even though it's the middle of July, that this fall, what we want to do as a church is we want to take a time as a church to commit to spending time to seeking God's face in time in prayer and in the Word. That, that's what we want to have happen this fall. We believe there's some things that God has already been doing in our church, but as we get ready for the next things that He's calling us to, it seems obvious that what we need What we need, and what we always need, not just more, we always need this, is we need Jesus. We wanna follow him and obey him and do only what he tells us to do. We don't care what happens around us, we don't care what other churches are doing, we don't care what other programs are out there, we only care what Jesus wants for us. So this fall, we're gonna be spending time in prayer and in the word. and We'll be giving more details in the coming weeks, But just so you know, some of the things that will be happening in that, it's going to be a time of 40 days where we focus on praying and seeking God's face. And during those 40 days, we'll be giving you a devotional that gives you five different readings and prayer guides throughout those 40 days. So you can do one for five days of the week. We're also going to be encouraging you to get in small groups that will be meeting in homes and be spending time in the Word and in prayer seeking the face of God. We don't want that. That's not supposed to be intimidating or scary. That's supposed to be an invitation for all of us here to seek the face of God. And so that's going to be happening this fall. You'll be hearing more more about it and more details about signups and start dates. But I wanted to make sure you were aware of that as we focus this fall on seeking God and what he wants for us. Now, uh, that's all my announcements time. Here's what I wanna do. We're just gonna jump right into Mark chapter six. And as we jump into that, let me tell you what has just happened with Jesus. Um, He got rejected in his hometown. He's been famous everywhere else, but he comes back to hometown and nobody wants to hear what he has to say. And so he leaves that area, keeps preaching, but he takes his disciples splits them up in groups of two, and sends them out before they probably are ready. They're supposed to go out, they're supposed to preach, they're supposed to heal, they're supposed to cast out demons. They've never done any of that before that we know of, and he sends them out two by two out into these villages. And that's what they go and do. We looked at that last week and there was some fun little additions to the job that Jesus gave them. Like they, they couldn't take money with them or a backpack or a change of clothes. They, they, just, they didn't have to go barefoot. That was the good news. You, you can put sandals on, but you, we don't know where you're sleeping. You're gonna go there and you're just gonna wait till someone lets you in the house. That was, that was the, the mission trip that Jesus sent his disciples on very early on in his ministry there. And so I want us to see how this worked out. Mark chapter six, look at verse 12 and 13. These crazy disciples actually did what Jesus told them to do. Verse 12, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So what we actually see is they go out and it actually worked. Like they're actually going to these villages and I'm assuming the disciples were very shocked by this. Like this is new, I've never healed someone before. This is new, I've never cast out a demon. I guess it's my turn to preach. Let's go up here and get this thing done. Like they're actually doing these things that they never had any idea that God would allow them to do. But he's allowing them to do these unbelievably powerful things these villages around them. And I can imagine, here's what goes on in my head. The reason this is important is what you see from the disciples, I think, from the rest of the gospel of Mark, all the arrogance, all the pompousness, all the argument over who's best, it all begins to start now. The moment that God starts to use them, the moment they see see these amazing things happen, then they start saying, I think I'm the better apostle. I think when he becomes king, I'm going to be vice king or however that works for them. Like, They start all these arguments about who's the greatest. They get a little bit more cocky and a little bit more arrogant because they've actually seen God do some things through them. Now, I'm getting negative on the disciples. Here's one of the really positive things about what just happened. As they do this, I want you to see what happens in the area around them. Verse 14 and 15, King Herod heard of it. Listen, now that means that's, that's King Herod. He's over all of northern Israel area. And he says, King Herod, of it for Jesus' name, had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Let me just hit pause. So here's how successful the disciples were. They go out, and they're so successful that nobody's talking about the disciples. I want you to notice that. The thing doesn't go out, there's not things spreading all over the place saying, hey, have you heard about these 12 guys that are killing it all over Galilee? Have you heard about Peter or John or James or Andrew? I think the other guy named is Bartholomew. Like these guys are just totally destroying it. There's guys everywhere doing miracles all over Galilee. That's not the message that starts spreading all over Northern Israel. The message that spreads all over Northern Israel is have you heard about Jesus? Like, who is this dude? Like, and, and here's what this tells me, this is something that's unbelievable to me, that these disciples, by God's power, are doing unbelievably powerful things, but they're doing it in a way that no one's talking about them. They're all talking about Jesus. Doesn't that seem amazing to you? I mean, if you know anything about the human heart, right, if you know anything about humanity, that doesn't make sense. Right, that, that doesn't make sense at all. If I come and visit you and you're sick, and I'm, we're playing make-believe here because this would be crazy. If I come and visit you and you're sick and I pray for you and I put my hands on you and all of a sudden you're immediately better. You're immediately better. Do you think that the tendency of a bunch of people who have that happen wouldn't be to say, can I tell you what happened when fire showed up at my house? Or do you think the tendency is to say, look what Jesus did. I think the tendency of the human heart is to talk about the person that was right there in the room that did it. And somehow the disciples were doing this unbelievable thing that the name that was being talked about by everyone was Jesus. Listen, church, this stands out to me. This is why it stands out to me so much, because it is clear from the Bible over and over and over again that the main character of the entire universe, the center of attention, all of it is all about God. It is all pointing to Jesus and his glory and his fame. All of it. Everything exists for Jesus. And that includes us, the church. That the church exists to make Jesus great. We are telling everyone how good he is. And what should be happening when people encounter the church, what should be happening when people encounter us, what should be happening is they're walking out saying, man, Jesus is phenomenal. So our job is to make much of Jesus. That's what the disciples did think that's what we should be doing. We should make a big deal about Jesus. So how do you do that, right? Like, that's what's going on in my head. I I just have a few things I want to say on this because this is not the main point of this passage. I mean, Jesus is, but... You know what I'm saying, but here's what's going on. For us to walk away focused on Jesus, when we gather together or when we're doing things, I I just was chewing on this this week because I thought, man, why is it so many times that I show up and I, I go to church and the focus that's on my mind is about the sermon or about the music or about this conversation, right? Did anyone else have that or is that just me? Like, throughout the week, the focus of my entire week is, man, do I get my work done? Do I have this? How are my kids doing? How's my family doing? i got all these things that are my focus, and I start realizing how rarely I'm thinking about what's Jesus doing and what's happening. And then it makes me wonder, do people, when they interact with me, are they walking away saying, man, dude, Jesus is awesome? Did, do they walk away from our church gatherings thinking about Jesus and loving Jesus more with their eyes focused on Jesus or, or something else? As I thought about that, there's three things that I wrote down. Now, these are Fayez, these aren't me, so you can write these and throw them away, or you can ignore them. I don't really care either way, I just want you to hear what I think, how I think this works. First one is this, I think that we must explicitly, explicitly and repeatedly make it about Jesus, and we never need to get tired of saying that over and over and over and over again. The disciples didn't just walk in there and heal these guys and walk out, and they were like, that must have been Jesus. Like, let, me, let me tell you, the disciples have—they must have had a Jesus sandwich happening in there. They came in saying, Jesus sent me, and Jesus gave me power, and Jesus said that I can heal, so I'm going to heal you by the power of Jesus. And when they get healed, Jesus just did that. They must have done that over and over and over and over again, and they never got tired of it, repeatedly. They're talking about, Jesus sent me. Jesus gave the authority, and Jesus heals, and I'm going to heal you by his power, not mine. And afterwards, Jesus did it, Jesus did it, Jesus did it. They said it explicitly over and over and over again. And when you read the Gospel of Acts, or not the Gospel, when you read the book of Acts, you see them doing the same exact thing. It's Jesus. He's the one that forgives. He's the one that heals. He's the one that gives the power. It's all about him. That's what they did. They explicitly and repeatedly said it. They never assumed that you knew it was from Jesus. They made sure they said it repeatedly. And as I think about that, and I chew about that. They didn't do it in some like cheesy or canned way. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You ever had that interaction with someone where they're just, there's that moment where you're like, man, how did you do that? And they go, it was just Jesus. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, You're like, that didn't feel real. I don't think I believe you. I feel like someone trained you to say that. That's not what we're talking about here. The disciples were not some parrot spitting some fake line out over and over and over again. They really believed that it was all about Jesus and all by Jesus. So what I don't want, what I don't think would be good for us is the first to all go out and start saying, Jesus did it, and no one believes us because it's, I can't, it could not be faker in any way possible by the way we say it. We don't need cheesy canned phrases that say, Jesus did it. We need people who are real and honest but are explicitly stating, Jesus is the one who does that. Because people know when it's fake, right? They know it's some can't answer. Don't do that, like it needs to be real. So the first thing for us to walk away focused on Jesus is I think we need to explicitly state it repeatedly and over and over again, which is the same thing as repeatedly. But anyways, the second thing is this. I think we've gotta commit to look for Jesus in everything. Like it's not just that we need to be committed to saying it and making it explicit. I think that what we need to do is we need to commit to look for him in everything. Like when we show up to a church gathering and we're gathered together, we should be actively looking for Jesus and what he says to his word and ways to praise him and ways to worship him and way to point to him. We should be actively looking. We're not passive in this moment where we're saying, oh, no one said anything about Jesus. I guess. I don't have to think about him today. No. You're like a bloodhound that's on the scent. When you walk into this space, when you gather with other believers, when you're doing life, when you're on a walk, when you're with your kids, when you're in the Word, you are hunting like Jesus, like like a bloodhound on a scent you just can't get it out. You're going to keep going until you find it. You keep looking over and over and over again. And When you do that, when you show up and you're committed to look for Jesus and everything, then you realize this, that when we're singing songs, I'm not happy to stop at the song i'm on the scent of jesus and i see the song as a tool to worship and praise him it's about him not the song when you listen to the sermon you don't care about the pastor and the stupid things that he says or the awkward things that he does you don't care about the stories or the illustration what you're on the scent for is not something that makes you feel good you're on the scent for jesus and you're looking for Jesus the whole time in everything that's being said, you want your heart to be stirred and called to love him and obey him and do what he said. That's what you're looking for. You're you're committed to finding Jesus in everything and you're not gonna stop until you find him. So it's not just that we have to make it explicit that it's about Jesus. We have to be committed to hunting down Jesus in everything. And then here's the third thing. I just think we need to know our hearts good enough to know that we have to fight the temptation to make it about something else. We, we do. We, there's this temptation in our hearts that we stop short of finding Jesus. We, we settle for something else. I, I just see this all the time in churches and there can be this bent in the human heart that says, listen, I just, we come to church and we make it about like a pastor. The church is not about any pastor. It never has been, and it never will be, at least it shouldn't be, and when it becomes about a pastor, she's not the church anymore. The church is not about any kind of program or ministry. That's not what the church is about. It never has been, it's never supposed to be. It's always been about Jesus, and the ministries that we do are intended to point people to Jesus, not just do something else. Do you see this in churches? I feel like I see it, maybe it's because I live in the church world. That's my job. That's my career. That's what I study. But it feels like churches everywhere, there's this call, not only from the church body, but from the leadership. It's like, no, you make it about this. You make it about the music. Or you make it about the experience. Or you make it about the program. we got this great program. I'm not saying those aren't good tools. I'm saying they're not the thing. Church is not about any of that stuff. The church is only about Jesus, and we have to be ruthless with our hearts when we try to make it about anything else. Don't don't let that happen. When it creeps up, fight it. When you feel it welling up in you and you find yourself distracted, I want you to fight that and look for Jesus. That's what they just, these disciples were doing. They threw down, and I pray that it'd be true of us, that just like the disciples, that the fame of Jesus would spread all over the place. I pray that his fame would spread, not North Florida Baptist Church. I don't need, who cares if people are talking about North Florida Baptist Church, if they're not talking about Jesus? Who cares if people show up and they're like, man, I like that message, if they don't like Jesus more. That's not the point, the point is always, Is always about Jesus, so let's be committed to be a people that make it all about him. Okay, that was an unbelievably long rabbit trail in this passage, but let me jump back to what's happening here with Jesus and with Herod. But while everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is, there's all this talk that's going on. There's one dude that he's super nervous about Jesus. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, Herod is a dirtbag. You just should know that right out of the gate. If you haven't read the Bible much, when you read this, you 're just going to find out really quickly they're not just Herod, but everyone that has the name Herod. And there's like a bunch of them, they're all the worst. OK? So when you see Herod, you need to think bad. Just spoiler alert. Herod's an idiot. Anyways. So when Herod heard of it, here's what he said. He's like, it's John. He's talking about John the Baptist, whom I beheaded has been raised, okay, he's saying been raised from the dead. So Herod's immediate thing, is like, oh no, remember that guy John that I killed? I think he came back from the dead. Like, that's how nervous Herod is. Now, now I just need you to think about that, just just for a moment, okay? I want you to remember that the thing that Herod is willing to believe is that God has brought John the Baptist back from the dead. I, I need you to think about that. When you think about how stupid Herod is about to get when it comes to rejecting God. I just, I need you to see that. So what's going on with Herod? He's nervous. He's like, man, this is John the Baptist. He came back from the dead. I never should have cut his head off. Like, spoiler alert, just because he came back from the dead, that's not a good reason not to cut his head off. That's You need better reasons than that, like maybe not killing people of God. But moving on. Verse 17. But he's gonna give us this story about what's going on with Herod and how this happened. Why did Herod cut off John's John the Baptist's head? Look at this in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Just again, do they love this name Herod? The guys are named Herod, the wives are named Herodias. Can we get a breather? Like this is, okay, just anyways, Herodias, awful name because of his brother Philip's wife. That's who Herodias was. She'd married his brother Philip. This is another thing you should know. Philip's real name was Herod Philip. Again, tons of Herods, because he'd married her. So look at verse uh, 18. For John had been saying to Herod, and that's repeatedly saying to Herod, not about Herod, not around Herod. He'd been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have Your brother's wife. Okay, so you need some background to know what's going on here. I've already given you a little bit of it. Everybody in this family is apparently named Herod. There's this original, the the OG Herod is called Herod the Great, and he's in the Christmas story. This guy's a real champ. He's the guy that killed every kid under two years old in Bethlehem. Y'all remember that story? Maybe we skipped that at Christmas time. Like Herod the Great, no problem at all killing a whole village full of little two-year-olds. That's who Herod the Great is. And Herod had tons of kids and tons of wives. And apparently all of them had the name Herod attached to it. Like he has all these wives. He's murdering wives. He's, there's all this dysfunction in these families. And when I say dysfunction, I'm talking Jerry Springer level dysfunction. Like they are disgusting. I, you think I'm joking. It's really really, really gross. I pulled up the family tree trying to sort through what in the world is happening with Herod and Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa and Herodias and this dude named Herod Philip. Like what is happening here? Listen, I'm going to make a really long story short and hopefully I give some clarity to it. So the way Herod the great, Herod, the Herod in this story is Herod Antipas, who's Herod's son. And it, Antipas's half brother is Herod Philip, and Herodias married uh, Philip, and then she left Philip, who was also just happened to be her uncle, the whole other story, technically her half uncle. She marries Philip, she leaves Philip, her half uncle, to marry her other half uncle. Are you seeing the chaos here? Like, this is the craziest family reunions. If you think Thanksgiving is bad at your house, I promise, promise you, this is the worst Thanksgiving Christmas thing you've ever experienced in your life. Someone's probably getting murdered at their family get-togethers, because that's what Herod does. He kills siblings. So when John shows up, he's sitting here saying, listen, uh, Herod, you cannot marry— Kind of complicated because on one side of his family, you can't marry your niece, you can't marry your grandniece because that's what she was on this other thing. You can't marry your half-brother's wife. Like this is the dumbest thing ever. That's what John is telling Herod, just out of curiosity. That should not be an offensive message, right? Can we all agree that, hey, that makes sense to me? That that's not even rocket science and you really need to really study the Bible hard to say, should I marry my niece? who's married to my half-brother? The answer is always, always no, always, all right? Like, this is not rocket science. And John, apparently, is the only one that's willing to tell Herod to his face repeatedly, you can't do that. It's phenomenal. Now, now here's what's going on in my head. Let me just throw this out there. Why would John do that? Like, here's John, like, he's got this huge ministry. People are flooding to him left and right. He's got huge crowds. People are getting baptized every single day. He's got this massive ministry. John, why even bother? Because Herod doesn't care. We know his family. That dude doesn't care. Why? Don't waste your breath talking to Herod about this. There's no good that's going to come of it. Hey, John, why throw away such fruitful ministry with a psychopath? Why are you going to do that? Like. But John, it's all about John. John did it, and he did it over and over and over again. He stood in Herod's face and said, no. God said no. Man, I love that. Do do you know why John did that? Because John didn't think that it was his job to filter God's message or change God's message. He didn't think that Herod had more authority than God. John believed that his job was to give God's message in its fullness, without any editing, without any kind of softening it up to make it easier for people to hear. He believed that everyone, every man, woman and child is under the rule and kingship of God and to rebel against that is sin. He's like, I'm not hiding, I'm not mixing that message, I'm making it clear and direct and it doesn't matter who you are, even you Herod, need to know that God says no to this. And it's not my job to decide who hears it, and it's not my job to edit it to make it more palatable, and it's not my job to market it, it's my job to give the message exactly as it was given to me. I love John. Man, and I'm asking myself a question as I, as I read this kind of stuff. Have, have we lost this today in the church? Do you feel that temptation? Like the, the reality is, as we look around, especially at our culture, it seems like our culture is getting more antagonistic to truth. doesn't like it. Like, they wouldn't say it that way. They would just say, if you actually are going to say that you know the truth, and you're going to have the audacity to tell me. You're going to have the audacity to tell me that God said no. There's a backlash for that. And, and a backlash that I don't know that we've really felt the pressure of in our country, maybe ever, in, the, in our 200 years of existence. There's a really aggressive backlash towards the truth of God and his word on, on all sorts of issues. It's not just that one issue is off topics or off limits. we got tons of issues that are off limits. I mean, you wanna get yourself nervous. I start talking about the things that are off limits, whether we talk about the things that are, um, whether, well, I'm not gonna get into it right now. There's a ton of off limits topics for us. I'm even nervous to say the off limit topics. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? That we start having conversations even in the church we get nervous about talking about things about gender and sexuality. We talk about immorality and not living together. And we start messing with things like politics or abortion or all these things. There's a million off-limits topics, and that's just in the church. We haven't even jumped into the issues that are off-limits outside the church. And here's what I'm concerned for. So I think we can respond in one of two ways that our hearts get really, really tempted to respond. The first is you look around and you see all the backlash. You see all the, just the full blast. You look around at work and you're like, dude, that, is, that conversation is not going to go well. You look around at the family dinner table and you're saying, that, that's, that's a completely off limits topic and I'm never bringing it up. And My concern is that we would see the backlash and the response in our heart would be fear. Just fear. To say it more directly, it would be cowardice. I know you probably have a whole bunch of things going on in your head. Let me be really clear about what I'm, I'm not saying, that there's not a time to be quiet. I think wisdom says there's a time to speak and a time not to speak. I think wisdom says sometimes you're slow to speak and quick to listen. I, I think that's godly wisdom, but what I'm afraid of has happened for us is that what's going on inside of us when we're quiet is not wisdom. I think it's fear, and fear can masquerade as wisdom. We, we don't want to say I was too afraid to speak up. We say, you know, wisdom says I should probably wait to the right time, but the right time never comes up, does it? We never speak. We're always trying to sugarcoat it just a little bit more. Just hopefully I can grease that thing up enough that they will swallow without knowing what I just said. The wisdom on it. Because I feel better if I'm wise. I don't want to call it what it is. I'm a coward. Man, church. The message of Jesus. The message of Jesus will cost us, when that fear wells up in your heart, when you feel that cowardice bounce around in there, I just wanna challenge you, man, I want you to remember what Jesus did through John the Baptist. His message will not advance through cowards. It makes me wonder, is that why the church in America is so weak, that we will stand up on line, but when it actually comes to the face-to-face conversations, we're gonna bail 99 out of 100 times, unless the person actually comes and begs us, please tell me how to get saved. We're not doing it. I think fear is one way we respond to what's happening out there, but there's another way I think that we might respond. For some of us, what's happening is you're seeing the backlash, you're seeing the same backlash as everyone else, but what happens in you is not fear, it's anger. Like this thing boils up inside of you and that the response to that pressure you feel to be silence that pressure you feel to get in line with what everyone else is saying about everything what happens for you is not fear it's just straight rage so what comes out is not Words of wisdom and grace, it's just attack, attack, attack. You don't listen, you don't think, you just go on the attack. Like If it's going to be a fight, I'm getting my shots in. And all of a sudden, you see the church, they're either unbelievably cowardly, they're not saying anything, they're not doing anything, they're being totally quiet in all their conversations, in all their relationship, and they all mask it under wisdom, or whatever that word is. And then here was the other part of the church that just starts blasting everybody for everything. And we're stuck here in the middle saying, I I don't want to be that crazy person. Maybe you are that crazy person. Just stop it, okay? He said, I don't want to be that crazy person. And it pushes you even further over here to this quiet, because you want to stay as far away from the raving lunatic as possible. Church, I think there's a way of Jesus that looks different. There's a way of Jesus, that what the way of Jesus, what Jesus would have us do, is that with Holy Spirit wisdom and courage, we would speak the truth with grace and love. Holy Spirit wisdom is not driven by fear. Holy Spirit wisdom is not cowardice. Holy Spirit wisdom is not raging anger. The wrath of man does not cause the righteousness of God. Holy Spirit wisdom, man, it guides you and gives you courage to speak the truth with love. Now that may seem confusing to you because you're asking all these questions. When do I speak up? When do I not speak up? How do I say it? How do I know if I'm being too harsh or too critical if I didn't say it the best way? Listen, let me me put you at ease. Um, I have zero answers for that for you except for one. And here's why I only have one. I think the only answer that God gave us is this. I'm gonna give you my word and my spirit. And it's your job to know the word and follow the spirit so you can speak with wisdom and grace. There's no other principle that I've got. The reason Jesus said it's better for you that I leave and send the comforter is because you need something more than Jesus sitting next to you going, say this. Okay, no, be quiet. No, no. He put the spirit, he really did. He really put the Spirit in you and I. And we need to learn to follow the Spirit's promptings about when to be quiet and when to speak up. And he does that through the Word. Listen, the early church wrestled with this all over the place because they were an extremely antagonistic society. didn't matter what they said, they were going to get blasted. I've got tons of verses for that, and I'm not going to go through all of those things because there's times you see them avoiding things and you see them confronting things. There's times they say, that's destructive. I'm not going to handle that. You see Paul tell Timothy, you silence those people. They're destroying families. And then you see him tell Timothy, avoid this person. They're completely completely divisive don't even wait into that conversation they were navigating that all the time in the early church that's another sermon for another time and you may want to grab me after the church and i'll i'll walk you through some of those i want to continue the rest of the story and kind of jump right back in here to kind of what's going on here's what happens next i want you to see what herod does verse 19 so he throws, Herod throws John the Baptist in prison, verse 19. And Herodias, that's his niece, grandniece, I don't know, whatever his wife's situation is, she had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why couldn't Herodias kill John the Baptist? For Herod, I want you to see this, Herod feared John. He was afraid of John. He's like, man, I'm nervous about John. Why was Herod nervous about John? He knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, look at this. He knew that John was from God. He knew that he was righteous. He knew that he was a good man. He protected him from his crazy wife Herodias who wanted to kill him. And look at this. When he heard him, look at, what, look at how Herod responded to hearing the word from John. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. It rattled him. It unsettled him. He was like, oh my goodness. like, whew, John is freaking me out. I feel so convicted right now. And look at this, and yet he heard him gladly. He liked it. Do you know how crazy this is? Here's Herod. He's not gonna tolerate John telling him no. I'm not gonna put up with it, I'm gonna put you in prison. And at the same time, he's like, man, I know you're from God, man, I totally respect you as a man of God. As a matter of fact, I keep inviting you to come and talk to me, and I like it. I love how bad I feel. Man, John, this is, you made me feel so guilty. Hey, I have, can, can we have John come back again? I would love to hear that. Like, he loved hearing John. And he did John favors. Hey, buddy, I'm only throwing you in prison. I'm not going to let my wife kill you because I think you're a man of God. Do you, you realize how insane this is? Listen, as, as I read that, I, I couldn't help but think this. Man, dude, if this does not scream about culture around us, that people would come to church week in, week out, week in, week out. They would hear the word. They would love the word. They would respect their pastor as a man of God. They would be respectable and dignified. But you know what the problem is? They're going to be just like Herod. They won't do a single thing about what they heard in the word ever. Never repent. Never do never love never worship just love the feeling of conviction i love the message i love the way john brought that zinger there well listen i wonder how many in the church are actually just like herod all the time and i hope this is a wake-up call for you you can be respected and dignified you can love the pastor and you can love hearing the word and you can never do anything about it and you're Herod, just modern Herod. I don't do, I don't repent. Jesus is really clear, but I'm going to keep ignoring him. He said to read his word, but I got to sleep. He said to be in community, but I got things to do. He said to love my enemies. He said to love my neighbors. He gave me all these things, but I ain't got time for that. I, mean, I don't know. I, maybe we need some more Johns and a lot less Herods in the church. Look at what happens, man. You get to play games. You want to be Herod? You want to play these games? You think you're playing games with God? You end up bringing all sorts of bad things on yourself because look at what happens because he's got a real winner for a family, man. Uh, This dude's crazy. Verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. He's got his birthday, he's having a big old party, he's bringing all the important people, because apparently Herod's respected or feared, tough to know which one. Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. Listen, there's all sorts of debate about what kind of dance this was, but you need to understand, this is not a cute little kid dance. From the word, we think this girl was probably an early teenager. This dance was seductive, and it was inappropriate. And the way Herod works, and you realize how this is so sick. Got a party. All these dudes here. Bring in my teenage daughter and have her dance for all these guys. And the mom's like, that's a great idea. She does such a great job. Such a great job doing whatever it is that she did. They're all like, dude, that was awesome. Look what Herod does. He, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her. I mean, he said, "Uh, I promise you, by God. He brings God into this conversation. Just so twisted. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. This is a great opportunity for this little teenage girl. She just get offered whatever she wants, a brand new chariot on your 16th birthday. I'm going to give you, not just a spa day, I'm going to build you your own spa. Like I can have money and land and new chariots, whatever I want. She can have it all in that moment. She's not stupid. She runs up to her mom because her mom is smarter than her. And she says, listen, here's what he just said. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? It's, it's, it's endless here. And her mom, I mean, you think about this. She can set her daughter up for life. Get her whatever she wants. Have ease. Do whatever this girl wants. But the only thing that her mom wants, look, look at this. The only thing that her mom was, immediately, without thought, verse 24, she said, the head of John the Baptist. Dude, how sick and twisted is that? This mom, what is she doing to her daughter? In case you think this girl's innocent in this, look at verse 25, look at how fast this girl goes in. She's not gonna think about this so the 13-year-old isn't like, I don't know, Mom, that feels a little offsides. She's like, great idea, Mom, because in the language, she goes in quick. She's excited about this. Like you see the excitement. Verse 25, and she came in immediately, with haste. Like, oh, good. that's great, I'm doing it right now. She runs into Herod. She's good at saying this with some delay, because she stalls. She's like, I want you to give me, at once, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist this family so wicked and so evil and and the king was exceedingly sorry why was he sorry not not because of john he's like oh man that's not because of his daughter and what she's becoming not because of the trap that his wife said he said because of his oath what are they going to think of me i'm so concerned about what you think about me i can't have the guys in the room thinking i don't keep my word I'm a man of integrity. It's ridiculous. So as a man of integrity, he has to do what he said. So twisted. So immediately, this king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mom. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The story's gruesome in its ending. Here's what you need to know. If we speak for Jesus, there will be consequences. There is no promise. As a matter of fact, there's the exact opposite promise. There's not a promise that you won't have anything bad happen. There's a guarantee that you will have something bad happen. Listen, if you speak for Jesus, something bad will happen at work. If you speak for Jesus, there's going to be... stress and tension in your family relationships. If you speak for Jesus, you're going to have friends that don't want to talk to you anymore when you speak for Jesus, even if you do it graciously and kindly with wisdom and love, there will be consequences. So church, the question for us is is this. Will we be faithful to Jesus or will we be cowards? It's that simple. Do you bow your head and close your eyes?